Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Guardian, NPR, an interview with Tim Flannery, Counterspin, On the Media, and a special essay by Mike Tidwell. I'm on the railway line to Drax Power Station, where climate camp protesters have stopped and are now occupying uh, a train carrying coal to the power station. Um, I've been here since 6.15 um, this morning, and um, the train has just been stopped just at 8 o'clock. Two trains went in earlier on. Um, they've stopped uh, the train in a sophisticated way. They, had, they looked like railway workers. They had red flags. Um, they say they did it all very strictly according to safety procedures. Um, and they've stopped it at a bridge um, over a river about two miles from the power station. It's caused quite a lot of disruption because the level crossing um, on the small lane that goes uh, across the railway line about half a mile to the north has been jammed at um, closed by the railway safety system. Um, but the climate change people say they hope that will soon be sorted out because the line is going to be blocked now for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm just making my way to the train, which is about 100 yards away from me now because the protesters are planning to get on board and apparently they've got supplies sufficient to last them for a while. Presumably the police will be here shortly and then we'll, we'll see what goes on. Or what goes off, as we say in Yorkshire. This is, a, this is a full one that's just heading to Drax, full of coal, one of the many thousands of tonnes that get burnt at Drax. And we're stopping the supply because it's absolute nonsense to be burning coal when we need to tackle climate change. Last year was Heathrow, this year coal-fired power station, because those are the two big things, aviation expansion and coal. If either of those go ahead, the government will never meet its climate change targets. So here we are at the train, and there's about... How many of you are there? About, about 30 of you? I reckon about 30. Yes. And I'll just describe that um, people have used the bridge. It's very well planned, this, because the train's been stopped under the bridge. It's, it's the bridge over the River Air. Um, so the protesters have easily been able to climb on top of these big coal hopper wagons, and they've unfurled an enormous yellow banner saying, leave it in the ground. It's an enormous train. Do you know how many wagons it has? Is it about 20, 30? Anyway, it's a colossal train. Oh, and now we can see Drax in the background. How long, are you, how long are you hoping to stay? We're going to stay here until um, basically Gordon Brown decides to reverse his policy to expand coal fire production in Britain. I know Drax has said quite a lot about using green stuff, although, of course, that's not very reputable now either. The, the biomass they're going to use is a complete red herring. We'd have to cover about um, 50,000 acres of British farmland to build the bio, bio crops for, for Drax. It's a complete red herring. They're not even going to launch it until about 2009, and it's not even sure they're going to do that. They're still, they're still going to pump out 21 million tonnes of carbon every year, even if they do the bio, uh, biofuels. They've now started um, using shovels, which they've brought along, um, very meticulously organised all this. They've started uh, shoveling coal out of the train and onto the track, um, which is going to cause further disruption to this whole uh, operation. Yeah.
The frontiers of oil exploration include the waters north of Alaska. Nobody knows how much energy is hidden beneath the Arctic waves, but oil companies want to find out. We're tracking their efforts as our series Climate Connections with National Geographic explores the changing Arctic business climate. That business includes a plan by Royal Dutch Shell. A federal court blocked its proposal to drill for oil in the Beaufort Sea above Alaska's northern coast. But the company is still trying, and its story tells you a lot about the forces shaping the Arctic's future. This summer, Shell assembled an entire fleet in an Alaskan harbor. Crews were performing maintenance on this drill ship. It carries an oil derrick 190 feet high. That means it steams around with a tower taller than the Statue of Liberty from its toes to its torch. This is the Frontier Discoverer. I would call it a state-of-the-art drilling rig, one of the very few that are capable of working in the Arctic today. Vince Rose works on the Frontier Discoverer, which has a reinforced hull. This whole section, which is, I guess, about six feet on either side of the ship, was added to give it the ice-strengthening capability that we need to operate in the Beaufort. Shell knows the Beaufort Sea because the same company found oil in the same place two decades ago. The people doing the drilling then included Rick Fox, who now leads Shell's Alaska operation. He sat down to talk after strolling across the deck of the drill ship. I remember as a young man standing out there and watching all the crystals of ice in the air when the, the sun was out, and, and it was just like a, you know, zillions of lights in and dry, cold. I remember how peaceful it was, you know, just at times it was so still and quiet, especially when there was ice on the water. It is an amazing place. It is an amazing place. Shell concluded the opportunity wasn't amazing enough, and it never exploited the offshore oil that it found years ago. Today, the technology is better. The price of oil is higher. New oil reserves are less available and Shell has reconsidered the Alaskan Arctic. We think it's a, a great frontier, partly because it's... Um, the belief is that about 25% of the world's remaining reserves are in the Arctic, and, and you know, I think it is a, it's a major play for us. Even the climate seemed to be cooperating with that major play. Polar ice retreated this summer from the spot where Shell plans to explore for oil. Shell would hardly need its reinforced hulls or rented Russian icebreakers. Which brings to mind a cartoon reprinted last month in the Anchorage Daily News. A man stands on an oil platform in Arctic waters. Now that fossil fuel use has melted the ice cap, he says, we can drill for more fossil fuel. When Shell's Rick Fox spotted that cartoon, he laughed and showed it to a colleague. You know, we, we were out working on the ice this past winter. Maybe there is a trend to less and less ice, but you still have years when I was 15 miles offshore on a snow machine, and it was some big ice. The Shell manager does acknowledge that Arctic summers are getting longer. Oil company ships have more time to explore before the winter ice returns. But remember, Shell did not get to drill this summer. The effects of climate change are more complicated than they might seem. The melting of the Arctic ice cap presents additional problems. That's Deborah Williams, who leads a group called Alaska Conservation Solutions. You will have greater storms. You will have more conflict with endangered species. And you will have more conflict, I believe, with the people of the North, particularly the Inupiat people, who are already facing hardships associated with 
global warming and the melting of the Arctic ice cap. She mentioned conflicts with local people and animals. Both those conflicts helped to explain why Shell's fleet did not reach the Beaufort Sea. It was blocked by a creature that Rick Fox noticed when he was drilling in that sea years ago. I remember seeing whales as well and, and uh, the, the beauty of that animal just passing through that clear, clear blue water. Local people have hunted those whales for centuries. Whaling captains joined a lawsuit seeking to prevent Shell's drilling. A court stopped all activity while deciding if it should order a full environmental study. Now, it was by no means a given that local people would oppose an oil project. Many take a pragmatic approach to the industry, as you could see at a picnic in Barrow, Alaska. That was the last of the door prizes. The picnic was sponsored by BP, which is one of the major oil companies here. The door prizes included 30 gallons of gasoline. BP was celebrating 30 years of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which brought jobs and money to this region. Everybody say thanks to BP. Yet when Shell proposed offshore drilling, the local government joined the lawsuit against it. One of their lawyers says drilling noise or an oil spill could harm whales already stressed by global warming. You sense the ambivalence of some Alaskans when you meet Ron Brower. He's a tribal elder who was greeted at the picnic by an oil company vice president. Cheese for those burgers? Okay. How about some ribs? Ah, ribs. That sounds great. All righty. Brower has actually done work for a Shell contractor. Yet he says the climate is changing too rapidly to understand the possible problems with offshore drilling. Any oil spill would be disastrous uh, to our natural food resources in the Arctic. Shell has never stopped working to ease concerns like this. The company even ordered construction of a special ship. Crew members would stand by on this high-tech bridge or control center waiting to clean any spill. Shell staffed that ship by hiring Alaskans, including Roland Rufus Iktakluk Warrior. He's a whale hunter himself, and he says his neighbors oppose offshore drilling. I just don't want it to happen, don't want to compromise our, our hunting grounds. Does that put you in a strange position because you're employed here as part of this operation, if it ever happens? The way I see it, being employed, I am in a position to hear and see what's happening and be able to bring up concerns from where I come from. He's telling his employers about the importance of whale hunting. He's had time since the federal court order left Shell's cleanup crew waiting at anchor. That same order left Shell's Rick Fox trying to figure out the next step. I am somewhat disappointed with the way this is turning out so far and, and hopeful that we'll still find resolution because we're absolutely still in the conversation. Shell remains eager to explore Arctic waters, and in this, it's not alone. It's not exactly a rush for Arctic oil, not yet. But from Canada to Norway to Russia, companies are buying leases or even starting to drill for the wealth of the changing Arctic.
talking to Dr. Tim Flannery, who's Australian for the year. Um, there's no doubt in your mind that the golden toad of Costa Rica is extinct due to anthropogenic global warming. Well, I'm a, a, a trained scientist and a sceptic, but I must say I'm persuaded by the, the scientific arguments that were put forth, and until a better hypothesis develops, that's, uh, I think, the best, the best uh, explanation. Is Be that because its, its habitat's dried up. Yeah, what, what happened with that animal was that um, it was dependent upon sea mists or, or, or clouds, really, that sat against its habitat during the breeding season and provided the moisture it needed uh, to reproduce. Um, increases in sea surface temperatures over the, over the uh, Pacific Ocean altered the level at which the cloud band sat against the forest. It, I think they raised by something like 500 metres. And so that species, which had a very limited home range, or um, so it had a very limited habitat area, uh, vanished virtually within two or three breeding seasons. Yeah. The way you describe, you know, a number of habitats around the world, the Arctic and the coral reefs, it's, it's too late to save them. It's too late to save huge numbers of coral reefs around the place, is it? They're probably one of the most vulnerable um, habitats. Now, we know that they'll be damaged. Is the damage reparable if we get the climate problem under control? Um, is, is, a, is a fair question, and I think still an open question. I just, uh, but yeah, I mean, you'd know more about this than, than I would in a million years, but the whole idea of an ecosystem seems such a complex and fragile thing that the idea of us doing something, like even as something as major as reducing our carbon emissions, would seem to be such a blunt and crude instrument to save something as, as intricate as, you know, the habitat of the golden toad or a coral reef or anything else. Mm. Look, can I give you an example from the past where altering human habits have had a big impact? Um, ozone depletion was a major issue uh, in the 70s and 80s. We saw catastrophic drops in ozone over the Antarctic, and that allowed more ultraviolet radiation to reach the surface of the planet. And ultraviolet radiation has a devastating impact on life. It penetrates our bodies and tears apart our DNA causes cancers and it's particularly dangerous to, to, to young growing things, so young crops that have just started to sprout or you know, young larvae in the oceans are all very vulnerable. So in 1987, the world's nations got together and decided to ban the pollution that was depleting ozone. Now, if we hadn't done that, we know what the trajectory of those chemicals, uh, the production of those chemicals was, and if we hadn't banned them in 87, we would be living on a hellish earth today. I mean, we would be having so many problems from, from substantial ozone depletion that the coral reefs would be even, in even greater trouble than they are today. We'd have big problems at high latitudes in the Arctic and Antarctic and big human health problems. So that was a problem that was solved by an international treaty banning the production of a particular chemical, and it's had a big impact. So, you know, moving on to climate change, why can't we take that same model and say, we know the greenhouse gases are causing this problem. Let's reduce our emissions of them, move to the new energy economy, and, and hopefully have the same sort of impact. Well, I don't know. I suspect the answer is something to do with the fact that there are huge economic interests involved in fossil fuels, whereas there weren't that many huge economic interests involved in the production of CFCs. Is that the right answer? Yeah, look, partly, but, you know, what we tend to overlook here is that one of the absolute prerequisites for human civilization is, you know, rigidly enforced anti-pollution laws. You couldn't even have the simplest village, you know, that people first settled in without those pollution laws being enforced, you know. You can't just crap in the village, so to speak, you know. 
Um, and, and the same is true today as it was 10,000 years ago. You know, you, you have to have rigidly enforced pollution laws to allow civilization to prosper. Another example was London in the 19th century when cholera was, was endemic. You know, um, that city was starting to really um, collapse under its own weight of pollution. The, the people of, of, of London had to invest in, in a sewaging system for that city in order to let that city have a real future. And we, We've seen it with ozone and now we're seeing it with carbon dioxide. And yes, there's lots of vested interests that oppose it, but ultimately they're opposing their own and their family's best interests in, in opposing uh, dealing with these issues. And I think people in industry are increasingly recognising that. Tell me about the Norm River Valley in New Guinea, which is an interesting example, as you describe it, of the effect of climate change? Well, that was uh, something I observed really only accidentally through through good luck. Uh, I'd worked in that river valley in uh, 1985 and it was the largest tract of pristine mid-montane rainforest that I'd ever seen in that part of New Guinea. Uh, it was full of unique species, many of which hadn't been described. Uh, and so I was finding large animals like possums that, that were new to science. Uh, we did some work there. I had to leave and didn't get back till 2001. And uh, when I came back to that area, I actually flew in by helicopter on that second trip rather than walk in. And um, it was just an incredible scene of devastation as the, as the helicopter came over the range into that valley. A bushfire had ravaged the entire forest area, literally destroying the forest. And the bushfire had started as a result of a big El Nino event in 1998, I think pretty much the largest El Nino event that humanity's experienced. Uh, frosts first killed the forest and then dry conditions allowed uh, fires to start. And that, that Nong River Valley simply is not not there anymore in, in the way I saw it. You know, the forests are gone. And again, you know, the, the impact of climate change on that was likely to be significant. We've seen an enhancement of those El Nino phases of the cycle and an increase in their intensity right. as the greenhouse gases... Because, are... I mean, of course, there are people who say, look, we've always had El Nino events and La Nina events. That's not climate change, that's weather, that's climate that we have no control over, you're saying. They're exacerbated by anthropogenic climate change. Look, a, a, a warmer atmosphere is a more energetic atmosphere. That is axiomatic because warmer air carries more water vapour and water vapour is latent heat energy. So many processes become energised as the atmosphere uh, warms. It's one of the reasons we've had this increase in energy expenditure from hurricanes and cyclones and we're seeing more extreme weather events generally. Mm. Um, biomass isn't the answer at all at all, is it? According to you... What are the stats? If we wanted to replace fossil fuels with biomass, we'd consume 50% more than we now produce on land. We can't do that. Well, that's right, but we love a challenge as a species, <laughs> and, uh, and the challenge is to increase the energy efficiency of our transport fleet um, many times over. And there are some fabulous tech new technologies that I think are allowing us to, to start uh, thinking that might be possible. So um, I, I do think biomass is the future in terms of uh, transport, at least a very significant part of the future in terms of transport uh, technologies. Um, and, you know, the first step towards making all of that happen, realising it's increasing the efficiency of our vehicle fleet and starting to invest in those technologies, like the char-based technologies and whatever, that will allow us to produce um, biofuels. And what's a char-based technology? How does that work? Oh, these are these fantastic, you know, things that people are experimenting with now. It's a... It's a very old idea, you know, charcoal making. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd, you'd bury the, 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 the 
the wood in the ground and, and burn it in the absence of oxygen or in the, with low oxygen levels. Well, you can do that in machines now that are very efficient. And what they allow you to do is develop um, produce a synthetic fuel or an oil at one end and charcoal at the other end. And the charcoal is all the carbon, so you can sequester that in your field and it increases the fertility of your, you know, your, your crops. Um, and you can take that oil-based uh, material, the hydrogen-rich end of, the, of that crop waste, and, and turn it into transport fuel. So that sort of stuff is just really smart. Mm. So you remain optimistic despite the depressing statistics we are surrounded by. Yes, well, I, you know, I, I don't think human stupidity will uh, triumph. I think we'll actually get together and do something about this problem and in time to avert a dangerous climate change. Now, we might be dead unlucky, and that won't happen, but I think that we can achieve it if we want to. And you'd have to say that changing public opinion globally over the last couple of years is a source, isn't a cause for great hope. Mm. You know? What do you think the opposition is? Do you think that it's, that it's genuine scientific scepticism, or do you think it's vested interests? I'm convinced it's vested interests, and it's working exactly the way it did with the tobacco lobby. You know, there are a few scientists out there who hold extreme views, and they might be, in their own mind, you know, quite legitimate extreme views. But um, in the case of the tobacco lobby, those guys, you know, were paraded endlessly in front of our television screens to convince us that there was real doubt in the scientific community about the dangers of tobacco smoking. And the same is true with the climate change debate. Is there any way that we could end up worse off than we are already by an unintended consequence. Don't even ask me what that might be, but you know what I mean? Because we're not renowned for seeing far into the future, I mean, future eaters, for heaven's sake, and we often do make mistakes because we don't quite understand the full potentials. Look, anything is theoretically possible, I suppose, but there's no reason to believe that that would occur at the moment. In fact, our history of dealing with these pollution problems, whether it be acid rain or, or the hole in the ozone layer, uh, gives us heart that we need to actually take responsibility for our emissions and, and, start, and start reducing them. You know? And that, that's just common sense. I mean, you can't keep polluting this fragile, small atmosphere of ours and hope there'll be no consequence. We've had three major global atmospheric pollution crises over my lifetime and people still seem surprised that they keep emerging. One of the suggestions you've made is that the major industrial countries fund reforestation in the tropics to neutralise carbon emissions. That would take a, a reassembling of the world order somewhat, wouldn't it? Don't think so, because um, the, and the reason I make that suggestion is that in the developed world... We have really imposed, or us in the developed world, have imposed a historic debt on the whole planet through our industrialisation. So what we've done is created wonderful prosperity for ourselves, but imposed a burden of excess carbon dioxide on the planet as a whole as a result of that. And that burdens on the order of 200 gigatons of carbon, too much carbon in the atmosphere. Now, the tropical forests have a huge capacity to draw carbon down out of the atmosphere if we were to regrow those forests. So one way of paying back that historic debt for the developed world might be to uh, invest in carbon as a crop in the developing countries. Now, there's some real benefits for the people in those developing countries if you do this right, because you're paying them directly uh, for this crop. The crop never leaves their fields, so they're actually in a very powerful position when it comes to... To, to the trade. It's not like selling, you know, selling your goods off into a global um, marketplace. 
And I think with modern technology, it can be done really cost-effectively. I mean, we've got this fantastic satellite surveillance of our planet now. We've got an internet that theoretically would layer to sort of... Can you imagine using Google Earth, Googling in, saying, I want the, the village that's doing best in terms of sequestering um, carbon dioxide in Papua New Guinea, and I'm going to make a donation to them of, of 20 bucks for their next ton, oh. you know, because I want to have my climate security here. Now, that's not threatening the world order or doing anything dramatic. All you're doing is realising the power of these new tools we have to allow people to invest in their own climate future and do something good for the poorest people on the planet. concerns about global warming sometimes argue that back in the 1970s, scientists believed the planet was cooling, suggesting both that climate change is just cyclical and that scientists can't make up their minds, so warming may just be the latest scare based on inadequate knowledge. Exhibit A of high-profile deniers like George Will and Glenn Beck is often a Newsweek cover story from 1975, talking about global cooling. George Will has brandished the magazine on the air, Dennis Miller held it up on The Tonight Show, Glenn Beck has posted it on his website. Well, these hosts probably won't be waving around the new issue of the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. As reported in the February 21st USA Today, this will include a survey of not the news magazines, but the actual scientific literature of the 1970s. Researchers looked at dozens of peer-reviewed articles from 1965 through 1979 and found only seven supporting the idea of global cooling, while 44 predicted warming. Contrary to any consensus about a coming ice age, no matter what colorful pundit fodder that might make, greenhouse warming dominated scientists' thinking even back then. The fact that some media at the time didn't accurately reflect that situation well, that should come as no surprise. Listen, baby, ain't no mountains high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. Don't worry, baby. Just call my name, I'll be there in a hurry. You don't need to worry. global warming and secondhand smoke have in common. George Monbiot, a professor at Oxford University and columnist for The Guardian, explains in his book Heat that in the early 90s, tobacco companies worked with global warming skeptics to challenge new findings on secondhand smoke by launching a campaign to discredit these scientific studies on global warming. But they realized that if passive smoking was the only thing they campaigned on, their fingerprints would be all over it. So they were advised not to campaign only on passive smoking, but to link it with other issues which bore on regulatory matters. And the first of those issues was global warming. 
What's the evidence that you have to document this campaign? The great thing about one of the big lawsuits against the tobacco companies is that one of the outcomes was to force the companies to put their archives on public record. And so you can go through the source material documenting exactly what their strategy is. And in this case, they say, we're going to set up this so-called grassroots coalition. We are going to call it the Advancement for Sound Science Coalition. We're going to tell it to campaign against junk science, which is any science we don't like, and to campaign in favour of sound science, which is any science we do like. Now, you describe what we call astroturf, fake grassroots campaigns. Mm. So what do they do beyond astroturf? There's a document which says we should launch this away from the big media outlets because they're quite likely to smell a rat. Whereas elsewhere, where journalists are assumed to be more naive, we think we'll be able to pass this off okay. It was a cleverly run campaign. Unfortunately, journalists right across the US were far too credulous. And the messages um, were picked up by many US politicians as well as by the public. These PR firms and the grassroots organizations and the think tanks repeating the line of this Philip Morris coordinated campaign, they weren't necessarily lying, were they? You write that they might just have been selecting and highlighting the research that suited them. The great majority of what they did was selection rather than invention. And they would cherry-pick research results completely out of context and suggest that these research results showed that climate change wasn't happening or indeed that passive smoking didn't cause any adverse health effects. Whereas if you look at the science as a whole, it showed a very clear pattern of climate change and a clear pattern of adverse health effects caused as a result of secondhand smoke. But in some instances, they did circulate information which was just plain wrong and which had no source. Well, if the goal was to muddy the waters for the issue of passive smoking by muddying the waters on global warming, mm. did it work? Certainly, the muddying of the waters on global warming has been extremely successful. And I would suggest that it's been more successful than the muddying of the waters on passive smoking, because certainly in the US, more authorities have taken action on passive smoking than they have on climate change. You aren't suggesting by your article, though, that Philip Morris took charge on muddying the waters on global warming, do you? I mean, certainly Exxon and the other big oil companies had a fair hand in all of that. Well, that's absolutely true. But the point here is that one of the campaigns which was by far and away the most central to corporate-funded climate change denial, the Advancement for Sound Science Coalition and JunkScience.com and the other things that it spawned, was actually started by Philip Morris rather than by Exxon, and Exxon only came in later. When you look at how the media have tried to deal with the situation of, say, global warming, we've noted quite a lot on this program that a false equivalency has been injected into the argument, the sense that there are some scientists that think one thing and some scientists think another, and, and you've got the appearance of balance when, in fact, most scientists think one thing and only a very few scientists think the other. Uh, are we still dealing right now, do you think, with this uh, false equivalency when it comes to discussing global warming, or have we finally gotten over it and accepted that there is a consensus on the issue? 
While there is no substantive debate taking place among scientists about whether man-made climate change is happening or about whether it represents a very serious threat to many of the world's people, in the media that debate is still going on. What it reflects is this very concerted effort by corporations to cast doubt on the science. Imagine a Major League Baseball stadium constructed to actually fight lung disease. Imagine engineers eschewing asbestos in every form, using only materials approved by the American Lung Association. Imagine emergency inhalers at every seat, with team officials aggressively marketing the quote-unquote healthy lung part to conscientious fans. Then, imagine your surprise in visiting this park to see a huge Marlboro cigarette ad plastered across the left field fence. Imagine another Marlboro ad behind home plate so TV viewers can't look away. Imagine finally being asked to stand and sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the, quote, Marlboro cigarette seventh inning stretch. Sounds absurd, right? Well, welcome to Nationals Park in Washington, D.C. for an inconceivable variation on this Major League Baseball theme. With public alarm over global warming at an all-time high, the team owners of the Nationals baseball team spent millions of dollars for a quote-unquote healthy earth park with environmental features like low-flow plumbing and energy-efficient lighting. The new park has been officially declared a green facility by the National Green Building Council, the first of its kind in American sports. But visiting fans know the rest of the story. Strike Marlboro cigarettes and substitute ExxonMobil and you have the astonishing reality at Nationals Park. Oil giant ExxonMobil the biggest contributor to global warming of any company in the world, has its name splashed all across the left field fence and, intermittently, behind home plate. ExxonMobil, which invests almost nothing in clean energy while gasoline goes to $4 per gallon, is the feel-good sponsor of the seventh inning stretch, so your child in Washington, D.C. at a baseball game can happily sing about peanuts and Cracker Jacks while the company ExxonMobil, its logo, sparkles on the biggest scoreboard in baseball. 
No wonder a coalition of concerned groups, ranging from faith leaders to college students to environmentalists, announced Friday it would protest outside all Nationals' home games until Exxon stops its ads. Their message to the Nationals is this. Thanks for the fluorescent light bulbs, but you can't be a quote-unquote green building if your number one underwriter is wrecking the planet. The climate crisis needs more than half measures and half loaves. It needs a full commitment from all of us, especially institutions like baseball that speak so powerfully to our children. The comparison to cigarettes is more than symbolic, of course. Exxon has done more than any oil company in the world to cast false doubt on the avalanche of science connecting fossil fuel combustion to the planetary cancer of global warming. The company has spent millions funding quack, quote-unquote, scientists and front groups reminiscent of J.R. Reynolds in the 1960s. Even now, CEO Rex Tillerson of Exxon says there's too much, quote, uncertainty over the cause of global warming to take national or international action. What uncertainty? Right now, Allstate Insurance Company will not issue new homeowners policies in coastal Maryland, Virginia, and six other states because of projected sea level rise and bigger storms. This is not politics or spin. Allstate is not a Republican corporation. It's not a Democratic firm. It's a private, independent company with its own capital at risk, and it is retreating from the U.S. East Coast because it says oceans are rising and extreme weather events are becoming more frequent. Indeed, just last month, the National Wildlife Federation released a study showing nearly two-thirds of the coastal beaches in the Chesapeake region surrounding Washington, D.C. will be lost to global warming-induced sea level rise unless we take strong action now. The Anacostia River, in fact, on whose bank the new Nationals Park rests, is itself a tidal river vulnerable to sea level rise. If the Greenland ice sheet melts, as many scientists say is now possible, we'll get 23 feet of Potomac Anacostia River rise in downtown Washington, D.C. Ironically, the playing field at Nationals Park is already several feet below sea level, so the Exxon ad in left field could itself be underwater due to our continued use of the advertiser's product. No wonder the mass media and average citizens have been so concerned about the, these issues of late, with the Go Green mantra a staple of national discussion. So hats off to the Lerner family, owners of the Nationals, for their pioneering greenness. Among its features, Nationals Park includes copious bike racks, its own in-house recycling center, and easy access to the D.C. subway. On June 4th, the team asked fans to wear green clothing to a game to show their support for the environment. Too bad those same fans had to see all the Exxon Mobil ads and sit through the Exxon Mobil 7th inning stretch. And too bad Exxon, outside the park, continues to make a mockery of everything the Nationals try to do. In total contradiction of scientific facts, Exxon recently helped fund a campaign to encourage one million American Christians to write Congress questioning the role human beings play in driving global warming. This, again, is the moral equivalent of denying the role cigarettes play in lung cancer. It is utterly unacceptable. The Nationals owners are harming their reputation, harming their community, and indeed harming our nation with their blatant association with the world's biggest environmental abuser. 
If Marlboro cigarette ads were plastered all over Nationals Park in Washington, D.C., there'd be a social uproar. We'd complain, and we'd keep our kids away, and we'd demand change. It's now time to do all of the above with Exxon. I am a huge baseball fan and a full-on Nationals nut, but I'm also the father of an 11-year-old boy. Is my love of Major League Baseball so great that I'd do the equivalent of offering my son a smoke? What do you think, Washington Nationals? Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I just want to take a minute real quick and give you a little bit of background information on the, the last clip we played. So I work at a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. called the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Worked there for about a year. I uh, just had my anniversary, which was nice. And so Mike Tidwell, who wrote that essay that you just heard about ExxonMobil at the baseball stadium, uh, is the director of this organization and my boss and everything like that. So we're totally focused on fighting global warming and everything that goes along with it, uh, fighting for clean energy and against dirty energy, that sort of thing. So uh, this all started because, you know, Mike really is a, a baseball fan, you know, and so when you, you go to this new stadium, it's this brand new stadium, it opened at the beginning of the season uh, this year, it's this really beautiful stadium, uh, and it's brand new, and they really did talk all about how it was a green stadium. It was, you know, built from the ground up specifically to be a green uh, park, basically, and be really energy efficient and, and recycle a lot and on and on and on. And so, so Mike went to, I think, opening day is, is when he first saw it, went to opening day game and they literally have the Exxon Mobil seventh inning stretch. I mean, like there are lots of advertisers at the stadium, obviously, um, and there are banners all over the place, but it's so obvious that Exxon uh, paid, it looks like more than any other company to have the highest profile uh, advertising in the stadium because it's not just on the uh, banners uh, plastered all around the stadium kind of rotating uh, on those electronic banners with with other advertisers but then they also got the seventh inning stretch where you know they say now please all rise uh, for the Exxon Mobil seventh inning stretch and it's really just comical to, to actually see it um, so you know if you're interested in just a glimpse of what we're talking about I, there's actually a video that we posted. I went down to the stadium one day, uh, you know, bought a ticket, went into the game with my camera, and filmed as much Exxon advertising as I could uh, just to get a sense of what it was like. And so I, I just put together like a 30-second video of some of the highlights of, of that. So I'll, that's posted, and, uh, and I'll put that in the show notes for this show. Um, so I, I certainly recommend you check that out. But uh, so what we're doing, uh, that essay is part of a new campaign we're launching against Exxon. You know, uh, summertime is like the slow season for nonprofit organizations because, uh, well, at least 
it's the slow season for us. Um, Congress isn't in session as much and, and uh, not as much lobbying to do. So this is when we kind of take a breather from our uh, campaigns, uh, our specific campaigns that we're working on. And we take a little bit of a breather. And so this is our summer campaign. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit more fun, a little bit less intensive um, than, than what we usually do. But we've, we've actually launched a campaign against uh, the Nationals uh, baseball team and the stadium and Exxon. And uh, so the idea is to have uh, volunteers go out to every game between June 20th through the end of the season and hand out literature, letting people know about Exxon's advertising and how ironic it is that it's at a green stadium and how bad they are on, on the environment and uh, and how much they try to deny global warming and so forth and so on and so on and uh and the hopes is is that we'll get enough fans uh, to recognize what's going on and you know boo uh the boo the billboard during the seventh inning stretch and boo exxon and write letters and try to get them to pull the uh pull the advertising so you know just in case you are in the D.C. area or Maryland or Virginia surrounding and uh, and you're a baseball fan at all, uh, just letting you know that this uh, could be going on, so maybe keep an eye out for it. It should be interesting. We'll see how it goes. We're, we're just in the planning phases and, uh, well, I guess just past the planning phases, getting ready to go into launch phase, but we'll see how that goes from, from here forward. And... If you uh, if if this issue strikes you as particularly interesting, you can actually volunteer and get into games for free. If you want to be one of those volunteers to help hand out literature to fans at the game, show up you know an hour or so early, hand out literature, and then get into a game for free. So that's that's our plan for now. Uh, check out strikeoutexon.org is the coalition website that we've set up. For this campaign and uh well, there you go a little bit of background news that's a uh, peek behind the curtain as to what happens when uh, environmental nonprofits get their dander up and decide to uh, pick a fight with someone that was kind of how it went down so hopefully you found that interesting anyways that's all i got for you today please go to the website bestoftheleftpodcast.com uh, support the the uh, show in every way you can. Uh, all on the right side of the screen on the website there. Uh, reviews in iTunes help tremendously. I know that a lot of you found us through iTunes, so you you can find that just just fine. And uh, and it doesn't take much. You know, one sentence is plenty uh, to to post a five star review. Uh, voting in Podcast Alley would be fantastic digging the show on dig.com there's a link right there to dig the show and i always feel like there's one more but uh anyways that's uh that's what i got if you want to contact me i am at hippie sympathizer at gmail.com send me a note uh, any comments suggestions about the show send them my way and uh oh the other way to support the show uh check out the submit clips tab um or send us clips tab on the website and uh, and read up on how easy it is to get involved in the show, either um, 
you know, sending in clips, just sending in information about clips. It's it's the difference between um, putting together your uh, four-year-old's puzzle that comes with, you know, eight pieces and you just have to fit them together and a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle as far as uh, how much work has to go into producing this show if... Uh, if we get clips sent to us, as opposed to having to find them ourselves, uh, God, it is, it's a world of difference. And the more people we get submitting clips, I promise we will actually put out shows more often. Right now, uh, we're averaging just about every couple of weeks, uh, just because the work it takes. We just don't have the capacity to do more right now. The more help we get we will actually be putting out more shows if, if we're successful. So please help, please support the show. And uh, that's it for today. So anyways, my name is Jay. I've been coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet just outside the border. I live right outside the border of Washington, D.C. And uh, you've been listening to the Best of the Left podcast, powered by bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.